Well, good morning again. That was a great two days of summer that we had. (laughs) I told my wife I was putting all my vests away, and uh, she was encouraged, and then I came in a vest today. So if I look look a little uh, plumper or healthier, it's because my wife has been away for 10 days, and my son, my one son who's supposed to be caring for his dad, let us eat Chick-fil-A and Taco Bell together in the same meal. So... (laughs) He, he's, not, he's not a good caretaker, so that's why all the children have designated Annabelle to care for us when we need assistance. Um, but he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Never says that about a husband. Only, only a wife, and that is my experience. He who has found a wife finds a good thing. Please open your scriptures to Matthew chapter 5 before we look at the very last illustration on the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to sort of do a quick overview, and this is the final sermon. This is a series that we began, I believe it was February 24th, and we come to a close now by looking uh, sort of at an overview of the sermon, and then with the final last challenge by our Lord. So Matthew chapter 5, R.T. France states very succinctly about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but to be obeyed. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see the recipients again. We've talked about this several times. Uh, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So, I have only visited Israel once. My favorite area was not Jerusalem or Bethlehem. My favorite area where we spent several days was up around the Sea of Galilee. And it is up in that beautiful area that still seems untouched by all the materialism and commercialism that you find down in Jerusalem and some of the other uh, what they would call holy sites uh, is not the same up north. And if you could just, it would just be great be able to gather, follow Jesus up, whatever hill he went up, and sit around him as he sits down and teaches. Some days, even some Sundays, our hearts are off. Right? Everyone else around us is singing or rejoicing, and we're just dull. Wouldn't it be great to have that opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet and hear him teach? This is one of those sermons that if you ever wondered what he taught how he taught it, this is it. It's the sermon on it's, it's more than just ethics. He's actually revealing as him, himself as a king as he inaugurates this coming kingdom. The recipients are the disciples, follower learners. In the final chapter of Matthew, he's going to say, Now you go make disciples. A disciple maker is simply someone who helps others follow Jesus. I hope you did that this past week. I hope you entered into people's lives and you helped others follow Jesus better or more faithfully or without shame. That's what disciples are. And the disciples, his follower learners, came around him. The text also defines the subject. It's life in the kingdom of heaven. Turn back to chapter 4, verse 17. Because Jesus' primary message was not his cross, though he prophesied that he would die on the cross and why and and in his work his primary message in this sermon is the kingdom of heaven 
In chapter 4, verse 17, after Jesus' confrontation with Satan in the wilderness and after John's arrest, Jesus went to live by Capernaum and it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, here's the content of his sermon, repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Now we're back into the sermon again in verse 3. The very first things he says in this sermon, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 10, chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. How can there be any blessing in persecution? Well, look at what he says next. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus teaches, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Turn all the way to the end, chapter 7, verse 21. We looked at this passage last week. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter where? The kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Is it just that spiritual realm that we all hope to see one day? The kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God. Those two terms are used interchangeably. In matter of fact, if, you just, if you're taking notes, write down Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 26. You'll have all these different terms being used interchangeably. The terms eternal life, heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and saved are all used interchangeably for this theme that Jesus is putting forward. Every kingdom has three aspects. It has a king or a ruler. It has a realm and it has rules. This sermon actually puts forward the rules, if you would, or the kingdom ethics of those who say, I'm a Jesus follower. Matter of fact, if your life habitually moves against what Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount, then it's probably true that your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, this is what I love about the Sermon on the Mount. And and now that we're looking back, you'll be able to see this. The sermon is filled with contrasts. I love contrasts because they're, they're really simple to grasp and they're really simple to apply. For instance, there's two kinds of righteousness. Genuine, contrasted with hypocritical. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, a hypocritical, a disingenuous righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the choice. Two kinds of righteousness are revealed by two kinds of law keeping, which is interesting. There's the external mechanical law keeping And there is the the heartfelt, genuine law keeping. Matter of fact, Jesus references six legal texts to sort of allow you to make that distinction. For instance, he says six times, you have heard that it was said, or he says, you know, it was also said. And then he follows that phrase by saying, but I say to you, what Jesus did was he drew attention to the lawfulness of the law 
but he also exposed the limitations of the law as a standard for righteousness. Right? So you say, I haven't murdered anyone. And Jesus is going to make the heart, the genuine righteous application. And he says, but I say to you, don't be angry with your brother without a cause. That's a lot more difficult than I've just never killed anyone. Then he exposes two motives. He contrasts two motives underneath religious expression. Everyone has a motive. This morning we have a motive for being here. You have a motive for why you do what you do. And that motive can either be an expression of self-centeredness or God-centeredness. Hypocrites do what they do, yes, to be seen by others, but they're doing it for who? They're doing it for themselves. They want to exalt themselves. And Jesus is going to say that when you give, when you pray, and when you fast, these can all be engineered to display your righteousness to other people. Two motives underneath all religious expression. And then there are two treasures, earthly versus heavenly. Two ambitions connected to the treasure that we seek. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you chasing after today? What are you living for primarily? There's these two ambitions that come to the surface in all our pursuits. And then he's going to say there's two masters. These are the, these, I love this, these contrasts in this sermon. God versus wealth. And I just want to pause here for a second because that surprises me. That out of all the contrasts Jesus can make when we're talking about who do we serve or what do we serve, he doesn't say God versus Satan. You would expect that, especially just after his confrontation in the wilderness in chapter four. He doesn't even say good versus evil or light versus darkness, though those contrasts are made elsewhere in Scripture. He says God or what? Wealth. When kingdom life and ethics are in view, how we relate to God and others, it is wealth that poses the greatest threat. Isn't that interesting? Kingdom citizens give generously. It's the holding of our material things loosely that breaks the steel grip of greed. Greedy people cannot be generously giving people at the same time. It's either one or the other. And when we are God-centered as kingdom citizens, that will be expressed or displayed in how we interact with other people. Two masters. Two ways, the broad and the narrow way. Two kinds of fruit, good versus bad. You may not be able to, to, to detect a wolf if, he, if he's acting and looking like a sheep, but you can discern between good and bad fruit. Remember, Jesus said, beware of false prophets. They come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous. And then he switches metaphors. Why? Because you can't detect a wolf. A wolf has motives. Trees don't have motives. Trees... Just bear after their own kind. And if you give it enough time, you'll be able to tell the kind of fruit on the tree. Just like you can tell when fruit sitting around your kitchen has gone bad. It's noticeable. Bad fruit. Then there's two professions. False and true. All these contrasts lead to a final contrast. So turn to Luke chapter, or Matthew chapter 7. And the contrast is two buildings or rather two houses, because life is lived within a house, or more specifically, two foundations, or to be exact, obedience and disobedience to the Word of God. 
I'm willing to read Luke's version of this section while you turn to Matthew chapter 7. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? So it's assumed that a profession is followed by action. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, Jesus says, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So when you come to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he puts forward this final picture, here's what we are to learn. Obeying Jesus' words is the mark of a true believer. Okay, we're going to develop that thought here in a second. Let me, let, me, let me contrast that with a negative statement. If you habitually disobey and disregard the words of the Lord, then you are most likely building on sand, not on rock. You are most likely on the wide path that leads to destruction and not on the narrow way that leads to life. Refusal to obey gives evidence that your profession, Lord, Lord, does not stand the test of relationship. Those who obey Christ's words because they have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are his children, friends, the objects of his favor, and safe from the storm of final judgment. That's what the storm represents. Okay, so let's look at this. Let's look at the wise builder. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. First, there is spiritual attentiveness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Jesus is very clear in his application as he moves into this picture of a building. James said, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what's he, forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, that means there's this sustained obedience to the words of Jesus, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Spiritual attentiveness. Does that describe you? Do you obey the words of Christ? Look at the illustration he uses. Verse 24. This person who hears these words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, a wise person living in this district during this time would establish it not on the sand, but on the rock from the sudden flash floods that come through that area. Matter of fact, Luke's account of this that we just read talked about when that stream lets loose. We often think of the storm that's coming down and, and, and that is causing the floods. But there was this, there's this idea that when the builder first went to build, it looked very arid and safe and dry. But the wise builder would still take time to dig down deep and lay a foundation on the rock because when those flash floods would come, it would, it would take away any house that was not built well. Jesus says he will be like a wise man 
who built his house on the rock. Look at verse 25. Because now Matthew's using not the illustration of a river, but of rain. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. Here's something about the storm. The storm pictured here, I do not believe, is just referring to a temporal trial in this life. Right? We do all face storms. We go through trials. We suffer with sickness. And those can often expose our true character. But do you know it doesn't always expose our true character? Even a, even a deep, deep test doesn't always expose our true character. But this storm will. This is the final storm, the storm of judgment, the apocalyptic storm, if you would, that will, that will ultimately test every single house. Picture yourself as a house. You are the one built. Right? We're even talked, you know, 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter talk about us as, as building blocks. Jesus Christ being that cornerstone. The storm will disclose the truth about everyone here. The result, look at verse 25. And again, now, now get the image of a house out of your mind and place your soul in the place of the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. You know, there's incredible hope, confident expectation in that result. Now, what is the alternative? Look at verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, that's the difference, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So instead of spiritual attentiveness to God's word and obedience, we have spiritual inattentiveness and disobedience. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So it is possible to be under the consistent teaching and preaching of God's word rightly divided and to hear it. To respect it, to believe it's more valuable than any other religious book in the world, and to go out those two doors and continue building your soul on the sand. That's possible. The foolish builder, verse 26, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Initially, both houses look the same, they both have curb appeal. They both have the same structure, but there's something out of sight, something built underneath that will, that, will, that will determine what happens in the long run to both of those houses. Again, look at verse 27. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. The storm again is inevitable and the storm will disclose the truth. Look at the result. Verse 27. And it fell and great was the fall of it. So let me ask you, what is the difference between the two houses? In light of all these choices, all these contrasts, you're presented with a final contrast. And we have to ask this question, is it simply enough to hear Jesus' words? Or is it simply enough to respond with good deeds, even amazing deeds? Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not done many wonderful works? Have I not seen visions? 
Have I not been close to you? Don't other people think I'm a zealous follower of yours? Lord, Lord, have, have I not been moral, even more moral than other people? Earlier on, we find out that's not enough. In this final illustration, both people heard the word. They heard the truth. Both chose a foundation. Both built a life. Both seemed okay as long as there was not a storm. Both faced the storm. So what was the difference? And the difference is the foundation. Look back at verse 24. A wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 26. There was one who built his house on the sand. Foundations are not seen. Usually only after a fatal storm rips through an area do you actually see the foundation of the house. Judgment will overwhelm like a flood and expose the foundation. Let me read Isaiah 28, verse 16 to 17. Listen to the, the similarity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion. So the foundation is a person. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. There won't be that anxiety, that fear. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Similar pictures in the Old Testament and the New Testament. John Stott said this, Jesus is not contrasting professing Christians with non-Christians who make no profession. On the contrary, what is common to both spiritual house builders is that they hear Jesus' words. The illustration portrays both as members of the visible Christian community. Both read the Bible, both go to church, both listen to sermons, both go to conferences, and both purchase Christian literature and listen to Christian podcasts. So what's the difference? Because the contrast is between Christians and professing Christians in the same community. The difference is this. How are you keeping the words in the Sermon on the Mount? I would say this. If you hate a brother or sister or even your enemy, which we are told to love, I conclude you are not a kingdom citizen. I don't have omniscience, thankfully. I don't want to know everything if I can't change it. I'd at least want, I'd at least want omnipotence with omniscience. If you are a racist, I will conclude you are not a kingdom citizen. If you do not have a meekness, or a brokenness of spirit in the Beatitudes. I might guess you are on the broad way that leads to destruction. Because the one who hears the word and obeys it is the one who is built on a rock. The one who hears it and pretends to obey it, but goes out there and lives contrary to the words of Christ, they built on the sand. 
And, and the storm will come. So the real question is not whether you hear Christ's teaching or not, nor even whether you respect and value it, but whether you obey what you hear. Only the storm will reveal the truth. Let's look at, the, let's look at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There's not a lot of explanation given here on what the people sensed. But Jesus didn't teach like the other leaders. Nor did he teach like the Old Testament prophets where he says, where they say, thus says the Lord. Jesus came and spoke as the Lord. So there's this messianic power in his teaching. D.A. Carson said the central point is this. Jesus' entire approach in the Sermon on the Mount is not only ethical, but messianic. This sermon reveals the character of our Savior. Jesus is not an ordinary prophet. Rather, he speaks in the first person and claims that his teaching fulfills the Old Testament. That he determines who enters the messianic kingdom. That as, that as the divine judge, he pronounces banishment. That the true heirs of the kingdom will be persecuted for their allegiance to him. And that he alone fully knows the will of his Father. So those sitting on that mountain that day, hearing these words, would have caught the difference between their religious teachers, their sages, their rabbis, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the proclamation that Jesus was making. And their conclusion was, he has authority. I want to conclude with two New Testament contrasts, sort of these two Buildings, these two foundations, these two eternities. The first is found in Mark chapter 14, where there is an unnamed woman contrasted with a very well-known man. The woman chooses to worship Jesus. And that was scorned by religious leaders. The man chooses to betray Jesus, and he is applauded by religious leaders. You can already... Feel the tension building in the narrative. The striking contrast exposes the greed, deception, and betrayal at the hands of Judas with the loving adoration and true worship of the woman. A woman's extraordinary adoration contrasted with the disturbing display of religious hate. Her name is never given. Anonymous devotion stands in sharp contrast to Judas' duplicity. Here is a man, a named disciple, one of the twelve who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, witnessed his miracles, and observed his compassion. Everything was stacked in his corner to be a success and to build on the right foundation. Judas already chose his master. And it's interesting, he does not choose God, but he chooses wealth. So, so we shouldn't be surprised that that's the contrast that comes up in Scripture. Judas was fooled into thinking that Jesus was worth less than 30 pieces of silver. That was the value he put on Christ. So the warning, be careful who you serve. You cannot serve both. You will either serve God or you will serve wealth. He is contrasted with a woman whose name is not given, 
Yet she rightly estimated Jesus' worth to be far beyond an expensive bottle of perfume. If you remember the story, it's the one being applauded by the religious leaders who says, she's wasting that. We could have sold that and given it to the poor. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound very spiritual? Okay, just wait. Just wait, because you will know a tree by its fruit. She's the one who made the right choice in the face of hostile religious disapproval. And when the storm came, as it does for everyone, her house stood. Judas, though outwardly religious, chose the broad path. He chose the God of wealth and built on the sand. And when the storm came, which was him hanging from a tree, his house did not endure the storm. It's another contrast. You have the woman at the well and the rich young ruler. Perhaps one of my favorite scenes in the Gospels is Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. She wasn't looking for a rescuer that day. All she was looking for was water. And it seems she chose the time of day to avoid the other women who were also trying to get water. And there's Jesus sitting on the well. Because even though she was not seeking for a rescuer, guess who was seeking for her? Jesus Christ. She believed. She entered the kingdom. She chose the right foundation. And her house stood the storm of judgment. And remember, remember the details about this woman. You know, she initially tried to evade Jesus' question. Go call your husband. I have no husband. That's right, because you've had five and the man you're living with now is not your husband. I mean, if... If anybody doesn't qualify to be morally approved for the kingdom of heaven, you have a beautiful example in John chapter 4. And of course, and I love to point this out, uh, so now that we're talking about my, my checkered morality, uh, let's talk about worship. She changes gears, remember that? So the Jews say we worship here, but we say you know, that we worship over here. And Jesus follows that path with her. Why? Because what got her into all those problems before was that she wasn't worshiping right. She was worshiping self, not God. And he says the Father is seeking people like you to worship him in spirit and in truth. And she believes. And he never returns back to her history. Not that we have an account of anyway. Full of grace and truth. You have this new worshiper who shouldn't qualify, but she does. Why? Because it's a gift of God's grace. Perhaps one of the most surprising scenes is found in Matthew 19. Unlike the woman at the well, this young man went looking for Jesus. The contrast is beautiful. They're not side by side in Scripture, but there's so much about it that helps us see clearly these two different foundations. He even asks this question, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, the final illustration here is about hearing the words and doing them. Right? So he's not too far off. He even brings up the suggestion of eternal life. Jesus then takes him through a revised version of the Ten Commandments. Listen to what Jesus says. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, this... 
there's a surprise coming, but it's not the fact that this man claims to have kept them all. Let's assume he did. He says, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. Okay, let's assume he does. Let's assume he kept all those. What do I still lack? He's making it easy, right? Where the woman at the well, she sort of of did this, right? You don't even have anything to draw from. She made it difficult. In Jesus, I I love the, the, the picture of grace. He just keeps chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, and he finally captures her heart. This guy's making it easy. How do I get eternal life? I've kept all those. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. You know what's coming. Okay, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve God in what? Wealth. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. How many churches are filled with this guy? He's good. He asks the right questions. He's stable. He's wealthy. But his God is wealth. And without the right questions, that foundation would have never been exposed. He just can't unload all that wealth to bow down and walk the narrow way that Jesus invites us down. And he fails to see that he has built his house on the sand. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You know, I love how Paul addresses this. Paul doesn't tell everyone to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He doesn't do that. He gave us that situation once to show how how much of a death grip riches can hold over a heart. But he says, just they shouldn't be haughty. Don't have them set their hopes on it. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So what foundation have you built on? 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Is that your hope? If everything blew away in the storm, but you still had Jesus Christ, is that enough for you? Is that your hope? I'm going to invite our worship team forward, and as they get ready to lead us in a hymn of response, I want to read ten verses out of 1 Peter. You can go ahead and stand. And I'll read this text to set us up to sing. It's an older hymn. You'll see why we chose it. Peter writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, which is the Word of God, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, 
as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Right? That house will stand. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. Here's the last phrase that I'm reading. But now you have received mercy. Let's pray.